It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. After your interview, just so you're aware, I'm, I'm going to be interviewing this woman named Brandy Calvert, who's a real estate agent in Wichita, Kansas, who I've, I've been kind of following her, her evolution over the last five years from very casual voter to like she helped organize the wichita women's march oh that's awesome uh, like just fired up by trump like one of those one of those folks and then she was a, a lead activist with the uh on the amendment recently so she's oh, like, that's great she's all in so i'll be getting her like kind of on the ground perspective after yours i i can't wait to hear that <laughs> when you release yeah. it i think that's one of the things i feel like has been lacking is enough stories of the people who are actually you know making this happen <laughs> I'm Ryan Grimm, and this is Deconstructed. That other guy you just heard is Tom Bonnier, who we're going to talk to in a moment. He's the CEO of a company called Target Smart, which is one of the biggest data providers for Democrats in the country. And you may have seen his recent op-ed in the New York Times, where he laid out some of the startling things he was able to uncover in the voter registration data that his firm collects. I wanted to dive deeper with him on what that all means for the general election and for the possibility that Democrats could actually keep control of Congress and codify Roe v. Wade next year. Now, after Tom, we'll speak with Brandy Calvert from Wichita. So let me start by asking you, for people who are not deeply into kind of democratic politics, what what is Target Smart and what like what why is it that that you're able to get access to data that you know a grad student might salivate over? So Target Smart at our core, we're a data company. So we collect, build, and maintain a national file of every registered voter. And then we do what we can to also maintain data on uh, people who maybe aren't registered to vote, but could be. And then we append other data elements above and beyond the sort of data that's uh, available from the public sources, meaning the state election boards will produce registration lists that have pretty sparse information, and we'll go out to consumer data sources and append uh, that information and then provide that back to Democratic parties, Democratic campaigns, and progressive groups so they can use that with their organizing and voter contact efforts. And so you've been doing a little bit of research lately, and I'm, I'm curious, did you did you start to notice things kind of popping in the data and then you, and then you started looking deeper into the data, or did you just have a hunch based on Kansas and based on just the kind of energy in special elections and just in the atmosphere and and start digging deeper. And what, what, what did you find? I think there were really two phases to it. First was this general sense that Republicans were perhaps slightly underperforming throughout most of this year versus where you would expect them to be, given that it's a midterm election and the party out of power tends to uh, do quite well in those elections. And so looking for general signs of that, and again, seeing signs of slight underperformance, but then really after the Dobbs decision that effectively overturned Roe v. Wade, I began looking for more evidence that it was inspiring activism and and energy. And frankly, at first didn't seem much. And then the Kansas election happened uh, in, in early August. 
and I have to admit, I was as surprised as anyone other than, you know, likely the people who were on the ground there about not only the result, if you made me bet on it, I probably would have guessed that it would be close, but that we couldn't win in a state like Kansas on on a choice position. Uh, The fact that one by 19 points or the no vote carried the day to keep abortion protections in the state constitution was shocking to me. And so being a data guy, a numbers guy, I set out immediately like that evening to figure out how this happened. And there's only limited data at that point. Um, you know, we don't have precinct level election results immediately. We don't have the individual vote history, the sort of information that states will make available weeks after an election that tell you who actually cast a ballot. So I looked at voter registration data and I set June 24th as the inflection point and looked at who was registering to vote in Kansas before June 24th when Dobbs happened and how that varied, if at all, after. And I have to tell you, I was absolutely shocked. And again, I'm, I'm not someone who is prone to superlatives and hyperbole as a numbers guy, but I saw that and I I ran this number seven or eight times because I was certain it was wrong because it showed that pre-Dobbs, voter registration was about evenly split between men and women, which is about what you would expect. Post-Dobbs, 70% of the new registrants were women or just over 69%. A 40-point gender gap. Not only have I never seen anything like that, I've never seen anything approaching that. And so that then, of course, then set me off. I'm pretty sure I stayed up quite late that night, then looking at other states to see, well, is this happening elsewhere? And finding the answer is yes, not anywhere near that degree of intensity, not 40 point gender gaps, but gender gaps uh, that were going into the double digits, 11, 12, 13 points, some states with 17 point gender gaps in registration since Dobbs. So Kansas was really the impetus for that. And obviously Kansas had abortion literally on the ballot. And so people are going to, that I, it's not surprising that you'd see the biggest, you know, registration explosion right there. But, you know, if, if Democrats hold the house um, and if they, you know, add, you know, one more filibustering, busting Senator, you know, they could, you know, codify Roe v. Wade next year. Like, so that's right. It's not quite as specifically on the ballot, but it is on the ballot. And are you getting a sense that, voters see that like is are are do they understand that wait a minute if we do vote for democrats in the fall we could actually kind of re-legalize abortion nationally i i do think you're seeing that i do think there is some sort of sliding scale where the closer the proximity to choice feeling threatened or 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 you know effectively being eliminated in these states you're seeing a bigger reaction so in some of the deeper blue states like a California, Massachusetts, or even in New York, you're not seeing as big of a gender gap. Whereas, you know, in some of the deepest red states beyond Kansas, states like Idaho and Louisiana, Hmm. but also states that have these very competitive races that, as you say, the winners will have a big say on the future of choice and access to abortions and, and healthcare in this country for women. States like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Uh, Michigan, Ohio are showing bigger gender gaps. And so there's definitely a component of that. And I would say even in those bluer states, you're still seeing evidence that the issue is motivating voters. I mean, I mentioned New York as a state where statewide you aren't seeing a huge gender gap. But if you go back to that 
special election in the 19th district from a mm -hmm. couple of weeks ago that was obviously incredibly competitive district, the kind of district that Republicans need to win if they want to take back the House. And obviously, the Democrat prevailed there. Abortion was very much on the ballot, so to speak, in terms of it being an issue. But also, at this point, we only have the early vote there, the vote history for the early vote. But if you look at the people who voted early by mail or, or early in person, 58% of those votes were cast by women. So suggesting that even though you weren't seeing a registration explosion there, you were seeing a big turnout mm -hmm. increase. And really, that's the next question is, does does this surge in registration lead to a, a turnout increase? You know, in that sample size of one, the suggestion was yes. Yeah, that actually is the next question I wanted to ask you because registrations are exciting and, and you know, people love it, you know, when new voters come into a democracy, but a, a very, very small portion of people who vote in 2022, you know, will be new. You know, most people who cast ballots this coming November will have also cast ballots in, in 2020. So is this surge in registrations important in and of itself? Um, or is it more just suggestive of, of where the energy is? Or I guess if Maggie Hassan, you know, is going to win or lose by a thousand votes, I guess the answer could be both. I mean, wh wh right. what is what is your read here? I think it's more the latter than the former, meaning uh, the potential for this to really change the narrative and the landscape in this election and go from what, again, historically should be a red wave election where Republicans take back both chambers and have pickups down ballot versus something where Democrats can potentially hold on to the House, hold on to the Senate, even maybe potentially pick up a seat or two in the Senate. It's going to be determined more by surges and turnout among those infrequent voters who maybe they voted in 2020, but they didn't vote in 18. They're, uh, you know, presidential year voters. Typically, there are a lot of there are million, many millions of those voters in this country. There is reason for optimism for those hoping to see that happen and that you don't have to go further back than 2018, where we saw something similar, not to the degree of intensity that we're seeing right now with women, but where younger voters in the wake of the Parkland massacre mm -hmm. began engaging early. We saw the March for Our Lives. We started looking at same the same sort of analysis, looking at voter registration pre-Parkland, February 14th, and post, and saw younger voters are now occupying a larger share of new registrants. It was met with a lot of skepticism. Uh, right. I think the Washington Post actually Nobody wrote a piece about the analysis. Right. Yeah. Well, everyone says young people don't vote in midterms. That's and and you know to be fair, that generally has been true. So I, I don't take issue with that. But our, the public analysis we put out was met with skepticism. And then the next phase was looking at the early vote. Well, young people were voting more in early vote. Still skepticism. In the end, you fast forward to election day. Younger people, voters under the age of twenty five, almost doubled their share of the electorate between 2014 and 2018. The blue wave doesn't happen without younger voters. And so is that the same path we'll see with women? We don't know. Historically, when you see a surge of intensity and enthusiasm in voter registration, it does tend to then play out also in voter turnout. But there's also several weeks to go still. Yeah. I mean, I can t certainly tell a story where that makes a lot of sense because you know registering to vote is a pain. You got to get your ID together. You got to figure out how to do it. And, uh, you know, unless you're somebody who just turned 18 and is super excited to vote, you know, one of those, you know, few, you know, that small, small portion of people who are like that, like you're somebody who's registering be because you weren't registered before and you weren't registered before because you didn't care enough to register before. So 
I, it does, I could see a through line how that does then, you know, predict or forecast some, some increased engagement and uh, which is related to some other interesting data that you, that you uncovered too around urban and suburban voter registrations, which also seems to suggest that there's more enthusiasm there than in, than in rural areas. What are those kinds of numbers and how lopsided are they? Or were you surprised that you're seeing that much energy in, in cities and suburbs? Well, for the most part, you know, when you look at these states, especially these battle, well, not even the battleground states, even in some of the red states like like Idaho, um, it ranges from about two thirds of these new registrants to three quarters are coming out of urban and suburban areas, uh, which you know, obviously those areas have higher populations anyhow, but it's still well above their share of the electorate in these states. Um, and that does speak to where the enthusiasm is. I mean, when you look at these women who are registering to vote at a higher rate in these states, and you look at the comparison pre-Dobbs to now in this post-Dobbs period, suddenly they're much younger than they were before. And in states that have party registration, they're overwhelmingly more democratic. So in a way, it makes sense that you know these voters generally are concentrated in urban and suburban areas. Obviously, it's not exclusively. You're also seeing increases in rural areas, but it's heavily concentrated in these urban suburban areas. I think for the Republican Party perspective, the challenge is same challenge they've had really since Trump won in 2016 is how do they win back some number of these suburban voters who were voting Republican prior to Trump? That's clearly been a part of their strategy. And, you know, the data at this point suggests that Dobbs has not only slowed down those efforts, it's actually reversed those efforts. Right. Are those post June 24th phenomena that you're talking about with the with the urban and suburban up upsurge? That's right. OK. And right. So the and the conventional wisdom like for, you know, our entire lives has been that midterms are bad for these parties that are in power because the party in power gets gets complacent. The party out of power uh, gets angry. So it's not so much that people change their minds between the presidential election and the midterm, but kind of who shows up changes. Do you think it is Dobbs that changed that, or are we just in a in a, an intense and kind of angry era where people are just generally more engaged in politics, basically since you know post Trump being elected, or is it is it some combination, or is is what you've seen post Dobbs showing that it's more Dobbs, or is it kind of more that Democrats are just now engaged in a more constant way than they were before? All the evidence that I've seen and the best theory that I can come up with is that it's a combination, but that Dobbs really provided a focal point, meaning, like I mentioned earlier, Republicans were underperforming before Dobbs happened. And and there's a narrative that sort of makes sense there. It's difficult to test these things in any sort of comprehensive way. But when you think about uh, the kinds of candidates that Republicans have been recruiting and running into the, fa- the fact that they are further to the right than the mainstream American voter. The fact that Donald Trump is still viewed largely as the figurehead of the Republican Party and leader of the Republican Party. And then, you know, you you go forward into the January 6th hearings and the impact they've had. There's this narrative of Republicans perhaps being too extreme. But I do think there's something to what you say in terms of this era of polarization and voters just being more intense in general. Uh, we've seen a number of states over the last few election cycles 
set a turnout record, break a turnout record. I mean, you look at Kansas and the fact that more people voted in this early August, this midsummer primary election that should have been a very low turnout election if you were basing this on past precedent, more people voted in that election than any midterm general election in the history of Kansas other than 2018, which set the record before. So I do think we're we're in this era of high engagement and intensity, and that's definitely a component of this discussion. And the other turnout problem that Democrats have suffered from over the past generation or two uh, is that their base was more working class. Working class people just t- tended to be more less likely to come out in midterms than people kind of higher up on the income scale. But if you look at the working class now and how it it votes, it seems like it's roughly divided about 50-50, maybe 52-48 or so. So is is that Democratic disadvantage disappearing a little bit as Republicans have added more working class and less reliable voters to their coalition? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think this is one that anyone would have a hard time answering at this point, right? Because uh, there has been this evolution where, uh, you know, it used to be that income was the biggest predictor of vote choice. Now, education, and obviously the two are closely correlated, but education has become more important, especially when you look at white voters, but also among voters of color. And absolutely, Republicans have made gains with working class voters, uh, including in some cases, voters of color. It's a question, you know, are we, does the Dobbs decision reverse that in any sense? Are some of these working class voters coming back or, you know, does it actually widen that gap? And then on the other side, take more of these better educated suburban voters and bring them uh, more in the direction of Democrats. Meaning, does it take the existing trends that have been in play since Trump came on the scene in 2016 and just expedite them, or is there a reversal? And at this point, I don't have enough data to be confident in either direction. I think this election is going to be fascinating and incredibly important for both parties in terms of uh, determining the future for working class voters. And I'm wondering if that has any any implications for voter suppression, because you know, voter suppression laws since Jim Crow you know, can't be explicitly tied to race. And so they've often used uh, class as a, as a proxy to try to suppress a democratic base vote. But I'm wondering if now, because they're, they're growing their own voting population that is kind of less accustomed to voting every midterm on a more working class population, that if they try to suppress the vote, if they're going to accidentally suppress just as much of their own vote, yeah, it's it's quite possible. I've I've thought of the same the exact same question. There's also the sense that, you know, the reason that Republicans have generally done better in midterms than Democrats is because their voters tend to vote just more reliably because they're older and they're better educated, higher income. And as you're seeing that shuffling, obviously Biden did well with older voters and the better educated voters have trended heavily democratic. There's a component of that too. And my instinct is, yes, that those voter suppression efforts that were put in place to target, let's be real, communities of color, though using, as you say, class as a proxy, could become more problematic for Republicans, given these trends. 
And last last question for you, you know, if if you take the trends that you saw in in 2018, you know, higher registration among young people than you and then you forecast it out to massively higher turnout among young people, you could have predicted the 2018 sweep by Democrats. So if if these numbers kind of do play out the same way among women in 2022 as, as their trend showed in, in 2018, is the house in play for for Democrats? Yes. Uh, the only reason I hesitate is because, you know, all of the structural disadvantages that were in place in 2018, you know, Democrats won the popular vote uh, for the House in 2018 by a massive margin, but still only won a very narrow margin because of all the things that we're, we're very well aware of in terms of voter suppression, uh, gerrymandering, and so on and so forth. And none of those things have changed. In fact, even though the gerrymandering from this past cycle wasn't quite as skewed towards the, towards the Republicans as maybe some projected, they still want a slight advantage. I mean, it's, it's, it's slightly worse for Democrats than it was in 2018. So Democrats would have to, you know, not win by the same margins that Democrats won by in 2018 to hold on to the House, but still win. The, it's not just enough to win the popular vote. Mm-hmm. Democrats will have to win the popular vote, likely by a few points. That's difficult. It's certainly doable. I do believe the House is in play for Democrats to hold on at this point. But, you know, with with several weeks to go, uh, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who would favor them. Well, Tom Bonnier, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Ryan. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. That was Tom Bonnier, and we're joined next by Brandy Calvert. Brandy, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate you having me. And so you you told me this story about five years ago, but I'd I'd love to hear it again from the the perspective now five years on. Can, can you talk tell us tell us a little bit about how you decided to help organize or to organize the the women's march in Wichita? It was really on a whim. Um, the women's march was being organized in Washington D.C. And I had considered going there, but ultimately, you know, I have a kid at home. I need to work. I have life that I had to, to kind of maintain and the acknowledgement that change happens from the ground up. I wasn't going to change anything going to Washington, even though it would have been a wonderful experience. It wouldn't, wouldn't change anything here in Kansas. I 
put out a little Facebook and that it, it just kind of snowballed. Yeah. What were your expectations when you, when you started it and then how did it, how was it on the day of it? I had mentally prepared myself that it would be me and maybe five people would show up. And I thought that if five people show up, that's great. It's, you know, five people that like-minded individuals that we can march together and, and make our little change. And the day of, I believe over 3,500 people showed up. It was very powerful, very unexpected. And, and just people from all walks of life being able to come together and find a common ground. And, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but my memory is that I got connected to you through James Thompson, who was a, he was running for Congress in a special election out in Kansas. And I was asking him about, you know, what his, what his volunteer army was like. And he was like, oh, you've got to, you've got to talk to this woman, Brandy Calvert. She's a, she's a realtor out here who, you know, wasn't really involved in politics before, but is, but is now, you know, practically running the campaign. It was, it was, was that right? Was it, or was it Brent Welder? I think it was, I think it was James Thompson. It was James. Yeah. He's, okay. He's pretty, he's, he's a wonderful guy. Yeah. And so he was running for Pompeo's seat and he ended up losing a pretty close race in a, in a district that is, that at the time was just 20, 30 point Republican. And to me, that was sort of a clue that things were really shifting on the ground and that 2018 might be wildly different than people were expecting. And I'm starting to get 2018 vibes from what I'm hearing on the, on the ground out there, but I'm curious what you're seeing out there. And I'm also curious what your kind of evolution as, you know, a kind of new activist has, has been like, have you been steadily involved since 2017? Was there, or were there moments where you stepped away for a long stretch of time and got back in? What's, what's your last five-year run been like? Uh, It's really been a roller coaster. Uh, So James Thompson was running against Ron Estes, and he made just a huge splash politically, not just in Kansas. I mean, he drew national attention. Bernie Sanders and AOC came to Wichita on his behalf. So it was just astounding. I've learned very quickly what burnout feels like when it's coming on and when I need to take a step back, take a break and refocus so that I have more to give. I try to share that with everyone. It's great to jump in and we're all very passionate. We want to work really hard and we want to give it our all, but we're, we're going to get drained at some point. And if we don't have anything to give, we're, we're not doing any good. So we have to take a step back, take a break, go to the lake, go to the mountains, do whatever you do to, to decompress for a little bit and then jump back in. And so aside from your activism, you know, your, your day job puts you in contact with people you know, all, all day long and probably tons of Republicans as a realtor out in, in Wichita. So are you, yes. were you sensing a, a change heading into the, uh, the abortion amendment this, this summer? And were you surprised by how, how much you guys won by? No. Uh, what I'm surprised by is individuals such as Derek Schmidt that grossly underestimate how deeply rooted Kansas is in our beliefs of our freedoms. I work with a lot of conservatives <laughs> in my job. I, I work with a lot of Republicans and oil field workers that are really very conservative individuals. And the one thing that we can all agree on, that we all come together on, is that we believe that America is a free country and we believe that Kansas is a free state. So 
coming together on issues where any of our constitutional freedoms are at jeopardy. I think we're going to continue to see that, including November, because we have two amendments again, (laughs) uh, constitutional amendments on the November ballot. What kind of amendments? I think the one that we need to really, the the top one that we should really be concerned with is a Kansas legislative veto or suspension of of executive agency regulations amendment, which would essentially dilute the governor's power to veto. Right, because you you guys have this habit of sometimes electing Democrats as governor, which I'm sure is very frustrating to the Republicans out there. Is that what that's geared around? Yeah, to me, it it tells me that Derek Schmidt is planning to lose the gubernatorial race. This is an individual who has continuously tried to repress our rights and freedoms in Kansas. I mean, both of these amendments are backed by him. The, the abortion amendment in August, again, was due to Derek Schmidt. The, and this is your state's attorney general. This is our state's attorney general right. who is now running for governor. So how do you think this is going to filter out in a, in a partisan way, in a Democrat uh, Republican way? Because it might be, it's, it's obviously it's one thing, you know, for some of these conservative oil workers, for instance, to come out and vote to, you know, preserve the right uh, to abortion. But what does that mean about their relationship to the Republican Party or about whether they're going to vote? Because I think this question has national implications too for some for some listeners. They're curious, like, is this new energy going to, you know, meaningfully translate into support for Democrats? Or is it more limited to coming out and supporting this amendment or opposing the amendment? I hope that we have this same turnout in November that we had in August, where individuals are able to recognize that this is, I mean, we won one battle, but we still have a battle ahead. And if we don't turn out, if these same individuals don't turn out with that same passion and same conviction in November as they did in August, then all of that hard work that we did in August was really for nothing. I hope that individuals are able to recognize and prioritize when our rights are being stripped or threatened, and they put that ahead of their maybe party loyalty. And so you weren't you weren't surprised by the by the turnout. And if you, you know earlier in the show, we interviewed a, a data guy from from Washington D.C. who was just completely blown away by by what happened in in Kansas. You know, talking about turnout at at levels in a, in an August primary that you hadn't even seen in the general election in some you know mm-hmm. midterms. But obviously, he's not out there on the ground. He wasn't watching it. So, like, w- what's it look like on the ground? Like, how how can you feel it? Is it is it? Are the Facebook pages popping? Are you getting a much better reception at the doors or when you're out in public? When you're or when you're talking to potential clients? Like, what's the? How was it that you weren't surprised by that? And and are you sensing the same thing now? In I, in August, there were people on the street every day, and I'm not talking about one group or one organization or just a few. I'm talking about individual people on their lunch break who, instead of going and grabbing a bite to eat, grabbed a sign and went to a street corner and others would, would stop and join them. I mean, it was, you couldn't not see it. There was no part of our, of our city, of our county, of our state where that issue wasn't at the forefront of everybody's, everybody's thoughts. And now we're, gearing up to go right back at it because this, like, I mean, it it was one battle that we won. I'm very grateful that we overcame that. But now we have 
um, November election, which is equally as important, if not more important. That's a really interesting point, because as somebody who covers a lot of elections, you when you go to primaries, even go to, say, Iowa caucuses or New Hampshire or something, you know, you 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 follow the, the kind of coverage, you know, you think, you know, you're covering it every day, you follow the national coverage, and you think like, you show up, and it's going to be like the Super Bowl, where there's just, you know, people absolutely everywhere. And then, then you get there, and you're like, you can barely tell there's anything going on. Like, there might be some yard signs here or there. But just looking out the, the car window or walking down the street, you don't actually see it kind of popping on on the street, unless you find a polling place, and then you might see some people you know lined up outside of it otherwise it just looks like any other normal normal day so so you were actually able to just kind of everywhere you went you could just you could see it on the ground it did feel like the super bowl a very strange <laughs> super bowl <laughs> but it was it was everywhere I and mean, people still have their vote no signs up and they're i mean we at this point we have to keep them up because again there are two more amendments that we have to vote no on yet again in November. There was also a, a huge disparity in voter registrations. You know, the w- women, women registered to vote leading, you know, after Dobbs leading into the amendment by something like a 30 or 40 point margin. Was, were you guys out registering people or, or was that more absolutely organic or, or do you think it was a combination of both? Combination of both. But yes, we were every single day registering voters. Every day. A lot of first time voters that were very passionate and very excited. And I, I think, and I hope that will set the tone for their future voting, that their first time going to the polls was something that important to them. Hopefully it will set the tone and they'll continue showing up to the polls every election. How would you compare how easy it was to get people to register to vote this time around compared to say either 2017 and 18 or or leading into the presidential election last time a third of our registered voters in Kansas are either unaffiliated or uh, libertarian right so when we have a two-party ticket it makes it a little I, I think that's where we're missing our voter turnout right? a lot of people feel like neither candidate represents them and so they simply don't show up which is counterproductive. We still need you to show up. We need you to to vote for whichever of the two best represents you. And with this election in November, I think it will be the same thing where, of course, we have uh, Republicans and Democrats on the ticket that we need voter turnout there. But I think it'll be the same thing in the the respect that we have these amendments on the ballot yet again. We have uh, someone running for governor that has time and time and time again done what was right for her constituents and another person on the ballot running for governor who has time and time and time again proven to us that he will do whatever it takes to take away our freedoms in Kansas and amend constitution not to give us more freedoms but to take our freedoms away. The last time that we spoke, you you predicted that one reason that you thought the amendment would go well uh, for you guys was related to the to pandemic politics that the idea of kind of medical autonomy and people's kind of resistance or skepticism of of the vaccine and particularly you know resistant to a mandate mm-hmm. related to the vaccine was was going to translate into 
support for abortion rights and you know with a with a medical autonomy through line that wasn't just kind of rhetoric and people playing playing tricks with words but like an actually deeply held take on that on that sense of autonomy i mean obviously you were right that you guys won on the amendment fight but you know do you think that was a significant factor oh i definitely do i definitely do i kansas was founded as a free state we don't respond well to government mandates or any kind of government overreach of power. I, I don't think we ever will. Yeah. And I wonder at nationally um, how that's going to play out because it's, it, it cuts against partisan bias, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously you had, you know, Democrats are, were the ones associated with vaccine mandates. Yet if you're going to then support medical autonomy when it comes to abortion rights, you're going to have to support Democrats in November. So I want, I, I wonder how do you think that shakes out? I think we just have to have the right Democrat for the job. Governor Kelly, regarding the the mask and vaccine mandates, she did listen to her constituents. And when Kansas said, we don't want mandates, we don't want the government controlling what we do with our body, whether it is regarding abortion, a mask or a vaccine, she listened. I, I, so I, I don't think hmm. that it has to do so mm-hmm. much with her being a Democrat or Republican, but an individual that is mm-hmm. willing and understands what constituents in Kansas believe and, and want. So it's after Labor Day now, which is when people say the, you know, the general election really, really kicks off. Are you seeing it? Are you seeing a significant amount of interest in November already after people kind of took a break from, from the early August referendum? Yes, I've received phone calls and emails and people are definitely gearing up uh, new people, which is always fantastic of all, again, of all ages and all backgrounds. And you seeing any Republicans switch after Dobbs? Not out loud, mm-hmm. but I, I did have quite a few of my very conservative uh, friends and colleagues reach out and say, and, and Catholic um, faith as well, that reached, reached out to me quietly and said, hey, I voted no on that amendment. Hmm. <laughs> Very quietly, I think it'll show mm-hmm. in the election that uh, they're, not, they're not exactly flying the Democratic flag on the back of their pickup truck. How do you think that translates for them in November? I think it will translate with, with the gubernatorial race and the mm-hmm. attorney general race and, of course, the amendments. And I don't know what we'll see aside from that because there's always going to be a little bit – there's always going to be a, a little sense of loyalty to a party, especially sure. for experienced voters who have been voting for a number of years. It's going to be a little diff- difficult for them to just vote along a completely different party line. But I think where it counts for the issues really impact them. I, I believe that they will put what is best for our state ahead of what they feel their loyalty may be to a party. Interesting. Fascinating stuff. Um, thanks. Thanks so much, Brandy. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Always appreciate talking to you. That was Brandy Calvert. And that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. 
Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. And if you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.